Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. We are a little squeaky there. We're going through this wonderful book of Hebrews together, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we find ourselves in chapter 7, in chapter 7. Before we get into it, hear the infallible, authoritative word of the majestic and living God. Hebrews chapter 7. I think what I'll do is, um, our verses is, again, 23 through 28. We'll read those verses, but I'm going to try to keep the whole uh, chapter in context, and we'll get into it in a minute. But let, let me just read our scripture lesson today. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23, following to the end of the chapter, verse 28. Hear God's word. The former priest were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we, sh- that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests who offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Verse 28. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later then, the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. As we know, the book of Hebrew was written by a unknown author, but was divinely inspired by God to exhort and to encourage his congregation who were under severe persecution, severe pressure to return to the old ways, to the old ways of ritualism and ceremonies and practices of the Old Testament in order to find their hope, to find their strength, and to find their salvation. This Jewish congregation some 2,000 years ago was made up of genuine believers, but as we have already seen, there were some not-so-genuine believers in their midst, and they were on this precipice of, of turning from Christ. And that's why the author, we've been saying over and over, has been methodically teaching them of the superiority, the, 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 the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. We keep saying that. I want that to be drilled into your head. The superiority, the supremacy, and the sufficiency of Christ. And so far, we have seen that Christ is better. He is superior than the angels, than Moses, than Joshua, than the promised land, and all the Old Testament high priest, as we saw last week. He is the guarantor of a better covenant. The author of Hebrew has been saying a lot about the priesthood of Jesus. Okay? And it's very hard, I think... For us in the 21st century, most of us not Jewish, to really wrap our head around the importance of the priesthood in ancient Israel. The temple worship and these sacrifices, the blood that was shed, these animals that were sacrificed as the priests offered up sacrifices for the people of God was central to their religious life. It, it was an addition. It was like, let's go to church on Sunday. This was central to their faith and to their life. In the Old Testament, God has described very clearly and comprehensively on the way in which we ought to approach Him. 
So before we get into the text, I do want to spend some time talking about the priesthood so that we are all on the same page. God has given us in his word all kinds of sacrifice in the Old Testament. We don't have time to get into all, to that, all of them. But what I want to talk to you about this morning as we get into this priesthood, as we finish up chapter 7, is the importance of the sacrifice that was done by the shedding of blood, by the shedding of an animal's blood, by the sacrifice of animals. There was bread offerings, there were other offerings, but I want to talk to you about that because when we talk about blood sacrifice, we talk about the sacrifice of an animal, that's not something you all hear very often. It can be somewhat, I don't know, unpleasant to talk about. But the Bible is filled with blood. You need to know that. The blood is throughout the scripture and refers a lot of time to the sacrifices of animals, to death and to violence and the altar. And some of you are thinking, you know, that's just, that's just animal cruelty. It's injustice, pain, suffering, evil, and gross. That's the point. That's what our sin looks like to God. It is shocking. It is horrifying. And quite frankly, we don't see sin that way anymore. And God made it visible, somewhat shocking and horrifying, so we realize that that's the way God sees our rebellion, our sin against him. It happens over and over in the Old Testament, sacrificial animals. Blood was literally flowing for hours like a river out of the temple in the Old Testament times. And in the midst of of his righteous anger towards sin, God, in grace and mercy, takes the initiative to pursue relationship with his creatures. That's what the sacrifices are all about. Yes, God is love, and yes, God wants a relationship with us, but yet God is holy, and he cannot embrace sin. He's actually angry at sin. He's wrathful towards sin. We would not want a God who just looks at this rebellion and hatred and, and, and brokenness of this world and say, oh, oh, well, such is life. Habakkuk says this, the prophet, You, God, who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Therefore, sin has to be dealt with. In order for us to be restored into right relation with God, sin has to be dealt with. And very importantly, family, listen, the atoning sacrifices were given to us by God to deal with our sin, to deal with the separation that our sin Caused. It is God who takes the initiative. He established the atonement, the at one meant, as a means to restore, as a means to reconcile and maintain relationship with his creatures. Very important to understand what that means. And we have a Bible verse. I hope you, um, I, I hope you could see the importance of what this sacrifice and this blood atonement looks like. And if you don't know it, it's, it's um, Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, hidden in the Old Testament on how blood sacrifices can forgive and reconcile sinners to God. Leviticus 17, 11 says this. In the midst of the law, God writes this. For the life of the flesh of the body is in the blood. And I have given, notice that it's God, given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement, how? By the life. You and I don't decide. God in His grace and His mercy wants to build relationship, have relationship with His his creatures. But because we're sinners, God decided this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you the blood as a way to be 
in relationship with me. Blood is a symbol of life, and blood was given us by God to make atonement. Not only because the scripture says the life of the creature is in the blood, but it is the blood shed is, is the life ending that makes atonement for your life. One life is forfeited, right? Sacrifice in its place, and God says this shall be a substitute for you. When life in the blood has been shed, death has come, it will be a substitute for your life. That's the point. And the Bible is clear, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There's a way in which atonement needs to be made, and God describes it, prescribes this to us in the Old Testament. You need to see that and understand the priesthood of Jesus. The other thing you need to really see clearly, and we're going to talk about this. We've got two more chapters to talk about the priesthood of, uh, of Christ. The other thing you need to understand is when you, if you were a Jew in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament days, when you went to the temple area, there was all kinds of barriers that blocked you from entering into certain areas within the temple. We'll talk about this more in a few weeks, right? So there was barriers. People were actually prohibited to going certain distances within the temple area. Outside, they had the outer court, you had the holy place, and then you had the inner holy place or the holy of holies you had a place where the gentiles could go and then there was a wall they couldn't go any further and the court of the women that's as far as they can go the court of the court of the men that's as far as they can go the priests as far as they can go and then the holy of holies in the middle of that place once a year day of uh, of atonement yom kippur the high priest would go we'll talk about that more later on but there was barriers that's the point i want you to see And you need to see this. You did not have the right to just waltz into the presence of God. You needed atonement. You needed to to have barriers between you and a holy God. And things like that were given to us, given to the Old Testament days, to show us our sin and to show us God is holy. But, as we'll see later on as well, God gave us the law, which is an act of grace, To show us and to describe and prescribe for us how we can enter into his presence. Family, nothing's changed. God does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're studying Gospel 101, which we're meeting today if you're here. um, Of the nature and the character and the attributes of God. He is constantly and always holy and loving and just. Everything about God never changes. He is still holy. He is still just. And you and I have barriers to overcome. We need atonement for our sins. Unfortunately, in our culture, when we deal with shame, and we deal with sin, and we deal with brokenness, we we want to run immediately to some therapeutic solution, some sort of dysfunction, some sort of ways in which I made bad decisions or the family in which I grew up. Now, that may have something to do with where you're at. Don't get me wrong. But we don't realize, first and foremost, our problem is not those things. A change, of, a, a, a change of environment, getting some help, which I'm all for, been down that road. But the primary root of our problem is that we need forgiveness. We need redemption. We need God's grace and God's mercy first and foremost because we have sinned first and foremost against a holy God, a creator God. Our culture is feeling, I think, the futility of of this approach of not pushing God out of that and just dealing with what's going on in my life and my trauma and in my childhood. Again, I'm all for that. Please don't hear me saying I'm not. But you have to deal with your relationship with your creator first. 
right? We're seeing this futility, this approach, and we're seeing it really going bad. We're trying all kinds of ways to wash away our guilt and our sin and our shame. And that's why the priesthood of Jesus Christ is so important to them in that day and to us this morning. The priesthood of Jesus. We know from our study that the tribe of Levi, one of the eleven, one of the twelve tribes of Israel, the tribe of Levi, one of the, one of the twelve, was given to Israel by God, appointed by God to be the priest. Aaron was the first priest, which was Moses, his older brother. And you had to have documentation that you were from the lineage, descendancy of Levi, of Aaron, of Levi, in order to be a priest. And what the, what, our, what the author of Hebrews has been saying over and over again about the priesthood of Jesus really culminates, well, I wouldn't say culminates, but he brings it to the place where he talks about, which we've been talking about, a man by the name of Melchizedek, right? Melchizedek. Now, the author's had a lot to say about Jesus and his priesthood. In fact, if you remember way back months ago when we started this book, Jesus, uh, the author speaks about Jesus' priesthood in chapter 1. When he says that Jesus, after making purifications for sins, that's the priestly role, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Chapter 2, after Jesus suffered death and, and took on flesh and blood, he destroyed death. He became a merciful and high priest, is chapter 2, in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, bear our wrath. Chapter 3, he's called the apostle and high priest. Chapter 4, the great high priest. And if you're a Jewish man and you're a Jewish person, you're thinking, Jesus the priest, Jesus the priest, Jesus the priest. You may be thinking, wait a minute, isn't he from the line of David? Isn't he from the lineage of Judah, not Levi? How could he be our priest? And what does our author do? Our author says, listen, Jesus does not come after the line of Levi, of Aaron. Yes, he comes from Judah, but he comes after the order of this mysterious man called Melchizedek. And then he quotes, if you go to chapter 5, twice, the author quotes David. Years later, after Melchizedek in Genesis 14, after the law was given, which assigned Levi as the priest, after all that, King David speaks of Melchizedek in Psalm 110. Very important. Where David says, listen, the Messiah is going to come. He'll be the priest king, not after Levi, but after the order of this mysterious man named Melchizedek. And he links together this priest and, and king in one. Because remember, the Old Testament, you either a priest or a king. You weren't both. It was unheard of. Now, Melchizedek comes on the scene, Genesis 14, two verses in all the Bible, as we read earlier in Hebrews, two verses in all the Bible, though, in Genesis 14. We realize that Melchizedek shows on the scene during Abraham's... Um, beaten up on the four kings, if you remember that. And then Melchizedek shows up on the scene. And what's important about Genesis 14 in this priest-king Melchizedek, who's a foreshadow of Jesus, is that Melchizedek blesses Abraham, showing that Abraham was the lesser and Melchizedek was the greater. And then Abraham pays tithe, remember, pays tithe. Abraham pays tithe to Melchizedek, of course, the lesser paying tithe to the greater. And we see this reversal this patriarch Abraham now is submitting himself to the blessing of Melchizedek and paying tithes to Melchizedek. Like, what's going on here? It's the point. Melchizedek is seen as a greater person, a greater, greater in a sense of, of role in the Old Testament. And we learned 
If you remember, as we finished up, uh, got in the middle of chapter 7, is that even though Levi wasn't born yet, the priests weren't born yet, because Abraham happened, of course, before the, 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 the 12 tribes. Abraham was before that. It says that Levi was in the loins of Abraham. In other words, when Abraham received tithes, excuse me, when Abraham received the blessing, when Abraham gave tithes both to Melchizedek, Levi was present in the loins of Abraham, both seminally and, and, and constitutionally or, or federally, we call it federal headship, he was present. And the point that he's trying to make is very simple. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, greater than Aaron. And now he's saying that Jesus is greater than Abraham, greater than Aaron, and greater than Melchizedek. That's the point that he wants to make. We learned two things last week before we get into our text. Very important. If you turn here, chapter 7, Pastor Chris did a great job, verses 11 through uh, 22. Two very important things we learned. Number one, the Old Testament priesthood that was prescribed by God was not permanent, and it wasn't perfect. The priestly role of the Levites in the Old Testament, in the sacrificial system, was not meant to be permanent or, or, or perfect. If it was there would no need for Melchizedek, a, a, a priest like Melchizedek, the priest king like Melchizedek to come. Okay? Of course, he's a foreshadow of the Christ who would come. Look at chapter 7, verse 16. Jesus, who became a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, in other words, he's not from the tribe of Levi like all the other priests, but became a priest, how? By the power of an indestructible life. For it is witness, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This mystery man who comes in without mother, without father, without genealogy, shows up on a scene, disappears on a scene. David picks it up and says, nope, Jesus is after that order, not after the law required Levites. Following me? Verse 20. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made much without an oath. In other words, the law was given. They all became priests. But this one, Jesus, was made a priest with an oath. By the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. You see what's happening? Jesus comes from the line of Judah, but Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek. Okay? It wasn't given in the law, it was given by an oath. That the Lord swore by himself, you, Jesus, are a priest forever. That's the point of verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The Greek word guarantor means surety. Uh, It stands for Jesus was given to assure us, there's security in him, that the eternal salvation, the priestly work of Jesus, lasts forever. Do you see that? That is enough. Listen, that is enough to shout hallelujah. That that God in his infinite wisdom and purposes from eternity past has brought this man Melchizedek in Genesis 14 in for a season to point to the eternal king, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is both priest and king, who reigns forever. We can shout and say hallelujah. But it gets better. It gets better. There's this, this crescendo of the superiority and the supremacy of, and, and, and sufficiency of Christ. We'll look at his permanency, his power, and his perfection. These verses are wonderful verses. You know, you don't, you don't think of Hebrews 
chapter 7, verse 23 and following, when you think of great verses of the Old Testament, uh, New Testament, I hope after today you will. So we'll go through these quickly. Number one, his permanency. Verse 22 again. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, remember who he's talking to. He's talking to Jewish folks who have trusted in Christ. And he's saying, listen, Jesus is a better guarantor of a better covenant. And they got to be thinking, they must be thinking, really a better covenant than our father Abraham? Better than that? The simple answer is a covenant that actually fulfills all the promises and covenants by, by the oath, the covenant was given to us that will never change is better than that. Yes. All the Old Testament foreshadows brought blessings, but none of them truly brought reconciliation between sinful man and a holy God. Jesus is God's absolute assurance of the new covenant. He functions as our new covenant high priest. Why? For one, look at verse 23. How does he do that? He does it simply. Verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. So every year, the Levites recorded the babies being born to certain families, certain members of the family. You can easily and and indisputably show they were descendants from Aaron, and they kept these records. One of the reasons why they kept these records is because people die. People die. Aaron, the first in line, served his people well. Went with the people, with Israel as they were wandering in the wilderness. But one day came. Aaron and his son Eleazar went up to the Mount of Mahor by with Moses. And the Bible says that Moses stripped Aaron of his garments. I read this verse. I'm thinking, this must have been a hard day for Aaron. Moses brought him up to the mountaintop, stripped Aaron of his garments, and put them on Eleazar, his son. You're done. It's his turn. Sorry. And Aaron died on that mountaintop. Did he like die as soon as he took his shirt off? I mean, I don't know. Did he leave him up on the mountaintop? See you later. You're done. Then Moses and Eliezer came down. uh, Eliezer came down from the mountain. There's a transfer. The priesthood was never meant to be permanent. If you look back in the Old Testament, there were a lot of good priests. There were a lot of bad priests. If you remember, we studied 1st and 2nd Samuel. Uh, Zodak served under David. He was a good priest. But the problem always remained. Whether you're a good priest or you're a bad priest, you died. It was somebody else's turn. All this changed with the new covenant. All this changed in the new covenant in Jesus Christ, which relies upon a priest who not only pleases God in all things, but who lives forever and guarantees our relationship with God. The assurance of our salvation... In Christ, again, is simply because, verse 24, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Right? He, 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 verse 23, he, he, the former priest prevented by death from continuing, but he, that's Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Forever. Interesting, the word permanent does not only mean never-ending, The word permanent means non-transferable. It's unalterable, unbreakable, not going to somebody else. And the priesthood of Jesus doesn't pass to somebody else because Jesus is that perpetual priest. doesn't need to be replaced. He can't be approved upon. He is eternally 
a priest. He is the guarantee of the promise of eternal life. Now, Josephus, he's an Old Testament, excuse me, he's a, uh, a Jewish um, historian back in the first century, said there were somewhere between 80 and 85 priests that served in the, in the temple between the temple uh, and between, excuse me, Aaron and the destruction of the temple, 70 AD. But some other people are saying there could be up to 30, 300 priests. But you know what? They were all going one after the other, one after the other. And you could see how when this author describes Melchizedek as having no father, no mother, no genealogy, he just shows up on a scene, leaves. We don't know when he's born, when he's died. You could see him pointing to so that we have this impression of the eternality of the one who would come after Melchizedek. His name is Jesus. He was just a foreshadow. He was just a type. Pastor John Piper, theologian, author, my favorite preacher, um, gives this illustration. I thought it was good. Between like a foreshadow and the reality, he says this. Suppose a a small child, you're a small child, and your mom, you and your mom get separated in the grocery store. And you start to get scared and you panic. And you don't know which way to go. You ever been there? As a kid, you you don't forget. And you run to the end of the aisle, and just before you start to cry, freak out, you see a shadow on the floor at the end of the aisle that looks just like your mom. It makes you really happy, and you feel hope. But he says, which one is better? The happiness of seeing the shadow or having your mom step around the corner, and it's really her. That's the way it is when Jesus becomes your high priest. This means that when you come to Jesus for your salvation, you come to a living priest who offered up himself, his blood was shed, who reigns in heaven, who secures your future, the assurance of our salvation. He replaces all the foreshadows with the real thing. All things that pointed to have been fulfilled in Christ. He's eternally present. And yes, Jesus died. There was a time when he was dead. He was in the grave. His death was real. His death was an essential priestly offering. But his death did not conclude the priesthood. It, didn't, it wasn't a time in which it transitioned to another priest. For he rose from the grave, victor over death. He continues now and lives forever as our high priest. That's why Paul was able to tell the Roman church, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Do you want peace? Do do, do you want peace in the midst of struggles, in persecutions, in trials, in distress? Then then meditate on this truth. This permanency, this this non-transferable, unalterable, unbreakable reality of our high priest in heaven. He's our only, listen, he's our only and eternal hope. He is our only and eternal hope, and he is our only help in the time of need. He tells the Jewish people, don't go back. He's telling us today, don't turn your back. Don't go back onto the old things. Trust in Jesus. He's your present, ever-present mediator. And look at his power, verse 25. Consequently, he is able... To save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives, he keeps making his point, he's always living, but look what it says, to make intercession 
me shut this off. Intercession for them. Consequently, therefore, because of, links together this, this, this permanency of Christ's priesthood and the, this intercessory work and power of Christ. Right? He's saying there's a certainty that Jesus forever present, but he's not just hanging out in heaven. That's the point. He's not just there. Walking around going, you know what, I, I did my work, Father, and now I have nothing else to do today. He's interceding. He's active. The word utmost, great Greek word, it has two words. It means all and end and termination, all and all conclusion. He's the Savior. He's ministering as our high priest. He's able to save the believer in the totality, all of his being. He's able to save the believer to the end, to the completion of all, always, forever, unending. The power of the complete total sufficiency of Christ. We talked about, and we'll continue to talk about, the sufficiency of Christ. And you see it right here. His unlimited sufficiency of his work. What a great verse. His power knows no bounds and his life knows no end. He is able, he has the power to save his people fully and completely. He's always interceding for us. Raymond Brown says this. He saves us not only in a moment of initial commitment, but day by day, moment by moment, through all time, end quote. What does this intercessory work look like? Let me tell you what it's not. Maybe some of you come here with this thought. So let me, let me dispel it right now. Christ's intercessory work does not look like he is trying to calm down an angry Old Testament God. Okay? He's not in heaven saying to the Father, listen, I know lose a knucklehead. Please, don't pour out your anger and wrath upon him. And he's interceding for me that the Father does not pour out his wrath upon me. That is not what he's doing. The wrath has already been poured out on Jesus on my behalf. That is not what he's doing. Okay? He's not pleading. Just take it easy. Begging the Father. Show him some love. Show him some grace. He, this is the last time he'll do it. Jesus is not a liar either, right? So I better not say that. <laughs> Listen, Jesus intercedes for us every time we pray in his name and for his glory. Our only access to the Father is by his mediatorial work. The very fact that Jesus is perpetually before the Father as the incarnate, crucified Savior establishes his perpetual intercession for us. His once and for all sacrifice, acceptable. His contact with the Father, his unbrokenly priestly ministry on our behalf is never ending. Our salvation is secure and it's absolute. And let me tell you this, and because that is true, it is a mockery. It is an act of derision to go to anyone else. Anyone else. In order to approach God and to receive salvation. To turn to a deceased relative. To turn to a saint. Even the Virgin Mary for your intercession is an affront to God. Philip Hughes rightly says, To rely upon angels or saints or any other finite being for their intercessions is not only futile, it is also betrays a failure of confidence in the adequacy, I would say sufficiency as well, of Christ as our intercessor. And it is to honor the creature rather than him who is our creator and redeemer, end quote. 
He's sufficient. He's all-powerful. He's eternal. He's able to save to the uttermost. To turn to any other is to deny this and to impugn the word and the character of God. How could we hope to draw near to a holy and eternal God through someone who's died, someone who's a sinner, a priest who is subject to death? We cannot. But family, listen. How, how could we who draw near to God through Christ fail to be secure? Since he always lives, never ceases to make intercession for us in the heavenly courtroom. Some people, we've talked about this. Some people take Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 6. We looked at that already. And then Hebrews chapter 10 and say, see, there's a way in which you can be truly regenerate, true believer, and lose your salvation. We don't believe that here. Look at this verse. Talk about security. As long as he lives, I live. As long as he intercedes, I'm safe. I'm trusting in him. He swore this by an oath that we can draw near to him. He, the Father, appointed Jesus by an oath to be the absolute better and greater high priest priest with absolute certainty that nothing can change, nothing will be altered, nothing can be improved. His permanency and power is forever. Encouragement, family, encouragement. Well, what does that mean for you this morning? Let me give you first the negatively, the impact or the application. If you're here this morning and you think that there's another way to God, if you think that you can somehow purchase your own salvation or there's other pathways or other religions or other philosophy, there's other therapy, whatever it is, what you're saying in essence is God did not keep his oath. He promised. He delivered. That's something you have to trust in and believe on. There's no other way. He swore by himself. Why? Because there was no one greater than him. Unless you think you are. I hope not. In order to have a relationship with Christ, you have to come through that high priest. That God has established by the order of Melchizedek, who is eternal, who is ever present before God with all the power and ability to save you from your sins. And bring you and usher you into the presence of God. That's the only way, family. That's the only way. Trust Him today if you've never trusted Him. But on the positive, what a Savior. What a Savior! Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. He stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless, we spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? What a Savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven, exalted high. Hallelujah. What a Savior. You know, Jesus said himself, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus not only is able to save, but he's the only one who can save. He's the only one who has the power of salvation. He, uh, excuse me, Acts 4.12. How, how does Christ intercede? How does Christ intercede? How does he speak for you and me in, in the filthiness of my sins and our shame and our wrongdoing and our disappointments and our failures? His answer is, as long as we identify with him, Repenting and believing upon him as he directs his pierced, stained hands toward the Father. He is mine. 
He came to you, Father, through my blood that was shed for him, for her on the cross. Your sins, my sins, are dealt completely to the uttermost because Jesus eternally intercedes and his remedy is the cross. The remedy is the cross. So then why do we deal with so much stuff without running to God? Why do we deal with our sin and our guilt and our shame and our brokenness by doing things that we think we can earn this grace, this mercy when God has given it to us as a gift? What removes our sin is nothing we have done, something he's already done once and for all. It's all-powerful, all-sufficient redemption as he intercedes for us on our behalf. And finally, the perfection. I mean, again, we can end right here and say, man, whoo, he is, he is, he is a permanent priest. He has the power to save to the uttermost. We have access continual forever as long as he lived, which is eternal forever. This is great end of story, but it gets better. The permanency, the power is not only the characteristics that distinguish Christ's priesthood from all other priests. It is perfect. Verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have a high priest who is holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Better translation, a high priest was fitted to us. In other words, Jesus is our high priest. God had fitted him. For the predicament we find ourselves in, sinful, broken, separated from God. And, and Jesus became this high priest in order to help us in our predicament. Look what he says. Three adjectives first. Three adjectives first. Number one, he is holy. He is uniquely set apart. He is the only one that has been 100% completely set apart from sin and completely devoted to God. That's what holiness is. Separate from sin, devoted to God. Now we are called holy in the scriptures. But we are made holy by what? God's calling, God's power, God's regeneration work. Regenerate work. It is a holiness which results with being chosen by God, set apart by God. It is by grace. But there's only one among us who is holy in the absolute sense. It is Christ, the word who became flesh. And dwelt among us. He alone can go before God. He alone is without sin. He alone earned the right by his perfect life. Jesus is holy in himself. He doesn't need the grace of God. We do. We need the regenerative work of God. He doesn't. He is holy in himself. Second, he is blameless, meaning without evil. We are undeniably sinful. Our lives are corrupted. We are malicious at times. Our motives, our deeds are unworthy. Let's be honest. We are intrinsically sinful with our motives and deeds, but there's nothing evil or dark in Christ at all. He's never done anything wrong, both in deed and motive. He is sinless completely. And you're thinking, how? I, I, don't, I don't either. I have no idea what that looks like. We will in glory. He is perfectly human without sin. He is blameless. He's always healed. He's never done harm. He's never been malicious. He is holy. He's blameless. Look what it says. He is unstained, meaning pure. In the Old Testament, you remember, they had to have special washings. They had to sacrifice animals. That all these things they had to do for themselves. 
But he is perfect, internally perfect, unstained. And what's so amazing is that Jesus lived 30 plus years, walked this broken earth, this broken, jacked up place, and did not at all, not even once, his own family and his enemies could not point to a single sin. Could not point to a single sin. He was holy, he was blameless, he holy, blameless, pure, and now look, he's set apart from sinners. He took on humanity, but listen, listen really carefully. When Jesus became, we're going to celebrate this Wednesday, in the incarnation, Jesus takes on a human nature. He is fully human, fully divine, but he does not inherit the corrupted, sinful nature. He's in a category all to himself. He is perfect and spotless, separate from sinners. It doesn't mean he didn't talk to sinners because he couldn't spend 30 seconds on earth without. Parents, his friends, his disciples. He talked to prostitutes. He talked to drunkards. He talked to all kinds. of. He went to service with them on a Saturday. He went to parties with them. He ministered with them. He did all these things with these people. But he was separate in a sense that he was holy and blameless and pure. Philip Hughes writes this. Had Jesus been stained with any defilement, he would have been incapacitated to achieve this great redemption on behalf, on our behalf, and the purpose of his coming would have been frustrated. How fitting, therefore, that he should have been completely without stain or without blemish. Calvin says this, not because he rejects us from his society, separate from sinners, not because he rejects us from his society, but because he is uniquely distinguished from us in that he is free from all defilement. He is holy. He is blameless. He is pure. He is separate from sinners. And then he's exalted. Look what it says, above the heavens. Exalted above, it talks about the transcendence, the, the exalted, the, the glory, the, the, the ability to, to Christ to live on this earth and then be taken into glory as his overarching transcendency as he is glorified and in the courtroom of God. He is greater, one commentary says, than all the high priests. He's in the very throne of God. I don't think we realize, I just want to mention this really quickly. I don't think we realize how important the ascension was, right? We talk about ascension. So Jesus came in the incarnation, lived the perfect life, died, rose from the dead, and then we know 40 days later he ascended to the heavens. Can you imagine just for a moment that he didn't ascend, he just like walked off into the sunset, never to be seen again, right? Just went into the wilderness. Where'd he go? We don't know. He went that way. How would you know he's in the very throne room of God? How would you know he's interceding for you right now? How do you know he's a perpetual high priest if he went off into the wilderness? His ascension teaches us that his sacrifice has been accepted. Payment in full. God the Father now receives him home. So that we can know that he's interceding for us moment by moment, day by day. John tells us this in his letter. If anyone does sin, and we do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know he's our mediator. He ascended to the heavens. The the powerful, all-sufficient, atoning work was accepted by virtue of his unstained character. I, I want you to see that again. Peter says this, Jesus is a lamb without 
blemish or spot. He's a lamb without blemish or spot. And because he's unstained in his character, look at verse 27. He has no need then. He's holy. He's just. He's blameless. He's perfect. He's separate from sinners. He's exalted in heaven. Therefore, he has no need, like all the other high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sin, then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. We're going to look at this a lot in the next few weeks. But just to say this, animal sacrifice could never take away sin. Every high priest had to wash himself, had to sacrifice animals for their own sins, had to go through that work before they can come and sacrifice for others, but not Jesus. He's the only one who was able to offer up himself once and for all, showing forth that the Old Testament sacrificial system has been nullified, has been eradicated, exterminated because of Jesus who's come, his perfection, his sacrifice. An offering so perfect and efficacious, giving what it promised, needs no reputation. Now listen to this. We're going to close in a minute. Jesus is the ultimate, better, and superior high priest because he's the ultimate, better, and superior superior sacrifice. He gave himself. Jesus is the ultimate, better, and superior high priest because he is the ultimate, better, and superior sacrifice. When he offered up himself, Jesus said, as he walked this earth, the son of man is giving his life as a ransom for many, that he will pour out his blood for many. Paul says Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Listen, because Jesus died once and for all, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament is ended. He is the fulfillment. He forgives your sins, the past, present, and future. The Jewish people that were under persecution during this time did not need to go back to ritualism, to go back to old ways of approaching God, to go back for their forgiveness because Christ, the perfect sacrifice, has come. He's completed the work of redemption. He forgives us our sins. He gives us access with confidence to draw near to the throne of grace, to find mercy and grace in a time we need help. Jesus stretched out on the cross. His heart, instead of filled with resentment and anger against those who put him there, against those who said crucify him, against you and I for our sin, in love died. A perfect, spotless sacrifice, an offering for us. You and I don't have to look anywhere else. Listen to me this morning. We're going to wrap up right now. You and I do not need to look anywhere else. Jesus is your high priest. Jesus sacrificed himself who was spotless and pure, who did not need to sacrifice for his own sins, but gave himself for your sins and for my sins, for your guilt, my guilt, for your shame and my shame. Have you trusted him today? You see the baby in a manger, but do you realize who this great and all-powerful, all-sufficient high priest is? If you did, you'd worship him. He's the only means of our salvation. We'll end with verse 28 as the band comes up. For the law appoints men, plural. The law appoints men, plural. In their weaknesses, as high priests, plural. But the word of the oath, the promise of God by an oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son, singular, who has been made perfect. He's been complete in his life and death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. And he's been made perfect forever. William Barclay says this, 
The Levitical priesthood high priest was a sinful man offering animal sacrifices for a sinful people. Jesus was the sinless Son of God offering himself for the sin of all men because he was what he was, the sinless Son of God. He was equipped for his office as no human high priest ever could be. Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one that all the Old Testament priests pointed to. The one who is holy and blameless, who is qualified as a once and for all sacrifice. Listen, the original recipients would be foolish to go back. To go back to what's been nullified, what's been eradicated in the Old Testament rituals and system. But family, we would be, de- we would be just as foolish to seek salvation, to seek hope, to seek help, to seek final satisfaction in any other one but Jesus Christ the Lord. He is greater. He is better. He is superior. He is supreme. He is sufficient. Worship Him. Trust Him today if you never have. And if you had, be encouraged this morning that your high peace lives forever. We're going to sing one song to close, that Jesus is better. My prayer for you is that this is not just sung words on a screen, but an offering of your heart to God saying you are better. Trust Christ today. If you don't know what that means, or you trusted him today, you could talk to me, Pastor Ricky, Pastor Chris. We'd love to talk to you about Jesus, but let's worship him together today. That Jesus is better. Let's stand. Father, thank you for this word, this encouraging word to see the beauty and glory and incalculable work of Christ in the gospel. The gospel is we simply cannot earn your salvation. The gospel is that we are so sinful, you had to die. We are loved and valued that you were glad to. So let us trust in the finished work of Christ today. In Jesus' name, amen.